When we come to our text today, and I'm going to encourage you to turn with me to Hebrews. You have your Bibles. Open with me to Hebrews chapter 6. If you're in need of a Bible, there's a Bible on the table. You can go ahead and take it home if you need it, or you can leave it on the table in the basket. But let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can meet here with you. And Lord, it, we're reminded it's all about you. It's, it's not about us. And we ask you to help us to really understand this text, to understand what you want us to know. Help us not to come to the Bible with our own preconceived ideas. But what we need is a, a fresh word from you, a fresh understanding of who you are and, and really who we are and our need, the need of you, and the hope that is in you. So we ask today that you would speak to each of us where we're at. And I ask that you would give me clarity in, in what I speak. In Jesus' name, amen. I've really been praying a lot this week on speaking this passage with clarity, understanding it. And the reason I say that is because there's probably about four different interpretations for this uh, book or this chapter in verses especially 6, chapter 6, 1 through 8. I want to take you back to the beginning of the book to remind you what the context of the book is. The, if, if we would go back and understand why this letter was written, it helps us to understand really what it's about. Because if we don't, then sometimes we read in, we assimilate things in that are not in the text. Well, as we came to this book, we learned that they were Hebrew uh, believers. They were professing believers. And in every congregation, there are going to be those that are believers and those are unbelievers. And there's going to be a lot that are sitting on the fence. And I'm not going to ask you, are you sitting on the fence today? But a lot of people are sitting on the fence. They, they believe in their mind, but they've really never moved forward. This book, a lot has to do with the immaturity because it's been teaching that Christ is greater than the angels, greater than their traditions. He's just simply greater in every way. And they hadn't got it. Now, it's real easy to come and as, as we were singing and we worship and we lift his name up. And when we leave this place, we live a different life. We forget what we've heard. And we'll talk about that. James comments on that. Perhaps that was really what was happening to this, this group of people here. There were some that were true believers. And I believe that's who it's written to, the, the bulk of it. And some true believers that are maybe not quite sure, they're believing, but am I really saved? Is he really this? And, and they had questions in their mind. I believe every one of us here have had that in our lives, questions. Is he really the Savior? Is he really the only way when we hear the world saying what the world is saying? But when we come to this passage, it's, it's going to be challenging. It's challenging for me just to study it, and it's refreshing, and I thank God that I'm able to teach book by book and going through verse by verse because then I deal with things that I, I don't deal with normally, and I go, wow, and I studied all over. 
Why do I study it all over even if I know it? Because I need fresh manna, and that's what you need is fresh manna, fresh bread each day from the Lord. Not something that we've heard, something that was taught to us, but really what is the author saying? What is the primary meaning of this text, and what does God want us to know? So follow with me in Hebrews chapter 6. I'm going to read the text, comment a little bit, and then we'll look at it a little more in detail. It begins with the word, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying in hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have been once enlightened, and tasted the heavenly gift, have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since again they crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks up the rain, which often falls upon it, brings forth vegetation useful to those whose sake it is also tilled and receives a blessing from God. But it yields thorns and thistles. It is worthless and close to being cursed. It ends up being burned. I believe that, that Paul is, excuse me, not Paul. <laughs> so many people say Paul when they come to the book of Hebrews. The author, the Holy Spirit, is writing its primary meaning, and this is important to understand, the primary meaning is to those that are saved. Let me just comment a little bit so as we're going through it, you keep this in the back of your mind. Look with me in verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, and made partakers of the Holy Spirit, it's describing a person who is saved. They've been enlightened. They have this understanding. They tasted the heavenly gift. We're going to see that that speaks of eternal life. It, it speaks of salvation. Okay? And as it goes on, and tasted the good word of God. They, they've been in the word. They know that they feed upon it. And the powers of the age to come. So its primary meaning is it's written to those that are believers. So the next thought that people often think is a person can lose salvation. I'd like to share an illustration. First of all, throughout the Bible, I, I see eternal salvation. And those, there are those in that camp that say, no, you can lose your salvation. And Jesus says, no one can pluck you out of my hand. You're kept by the power of God. If you run astray in life, he'll discipline those he loves. In fact, he'll even go so far to those that are, that are very weak and rebellious, even to take their life, to have mercy upon them and mercy upon their family and bring them home because they're weak. But we see that all through the scripture. It's important. But often they teach that you could lose salvation. And I don't believe this is what this text is is teaching because when you interpret something you have to interpret it in light of all the scripture in the Bible 
that's where you find the balance. It's not going to mean this over here and this over here and this over here and this over here. God has laid it out simply. For those who seek him will find him. And we, we seek him in the word. We seek to know his heart. God has saved us. He's saving us. And he will save us in the end from that wrath. So it's important to understand that these are believers that he's writing to. They're born again. They're regenerated. Now it begins in verse 1 with that word, therefore, linking us to the passage that we looked at before and even the verses before that. Again, therefore, leaving those elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. And this is really what this book is about, is pressing on and maturing. By now that they should be teachers of the word, but they're still on milk. They're not growing. They're not matured. This is the context what he's speaking to. So that therefore links the passage that again that the author wrote concerning the dullness of the hearers in the previous chapter. He wanted to, to explain about Melchizedek and take them deeper into the word and understanding, but they weren't ready. In fact, sometimes some people are not ready. They say, well, I can't understand. I don't want to understand is really what they're saying. It's too difficult. The things that are impossible for you and me are possible for God. If you want to know the word of God, God will give you the understanding. He'll either speak to you directly. He could speak through an angel. He'll use a teacher, somebody on the radio. You may pray for a long time, and all of a sudden you turn on the radio, boom. That's exactly what I've been praying about. Or come into church that day or meet in a Bible study. See, the thing is God wants to speak to you more than we want to hear from him. So he's writing to them because of their dullness. Now they're Hebrew Christians and they had forsaken the responsibility to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. As a mom, as a dad, you understand that. When your kids grow up, sometimes they just don't want to be a part of the house. They don't want to take out the trash. They don't want to be a part and help in some way. And, and this is what was happening in the body of Christ. I'm just one member. You're another member. We focus sometimes on just coming to church. And that's what believers do. They come to church. They congregate together. They worship together. They study the word. But what's more important is that we be the church wherever we're at. That when people see us, they see there's something different. And the, they weren't growing. They weren't maturing. They might as well have been in with the little kids when we have the little kids. And, and just the very, very basic teaching. I've heard and been in another church with somebody one time and said, Well, I already know that. I already know that. You wouldn't know that by looking at their life. They needed to hear it as much as I needed to hear it. I needed to be reminded of my heart as wickedly deceitful above all things who could know it. And all of us should recognize that in our own lives. Rather, being delighted in the word, they, they become dull. It was boring. That's for the scholars. That's for the teachers. I just need to know how to be a good businessman. I just need to know how to do this, how to do that in a worldly sense. But when you grow in the grace and love of Jesus Christ, you want to honor him. You want to know him. 
eternal life is knowing him in a, a very intimate, personal way. And basically, they had refused. And some had known in their mind, yeah, there's something different. I, I can see the lives of those people around me. They made a profession of faith. And, and, and they were some believers and some were not probably believers, but the primary context is, is to the believers. In a sense, they were spiritual toddlers. Still running around in diapers, in a sense, when they should have been teachers. Isaiah talked about this many years ago. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8 and 10. should go on the screen in a second. Notice it there. And then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but they do not perceive. Keep on looking, but they do not understand. And render their hearts of this people insensitive. The ears dull, their eyes dim, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And this passage is quoted many times in the New Testament, especially at the, uh, the end of Acts, Acts 28, when Paul is speaking to those Jewish people that are in Rome, and they're rejecting that truth. And Isaiah was prophesied that hundreds and hundreds of years before. Now, Isaiah heard the call, and Isaiah responded to the call. Even know that these people would not be people of the word. And what's interesting about this passage here is if you come, and it's, it's teaching this principle, and I'm not going to go exhaustive on it, but I think it's the background to this verse. If you reject God's word, you harden your heart to God's word, just as Pharaoh hardened his heart, God judicially will harden your heart. Judicially blind you. When you say, I don't want to believe, I reject it. God says, okay. I won't force you. And that's probably one of the saddest things in the Bible. When people close their mind to the very word of God, the very words of life, the truth that would set them free. When a person comes to the word, well, I believe it means this. And another one says, I believe this. But what did the author mean? What did God himself say? What is the context of the passage? It's done from the pulpits that way. It's done right through the body of Christ. Each one of us need to reevaluate where we're at with the Lord. There's no room in our lives for compromise. And that's what this group of people were doing. They were compromising their faith, compromising their relationship. Verses 9 and 10, and do not describe the, the goal of Isaiah's ministry, but the inevitable results. You and I will bring the word of God to people 
and they will reject it and they will be lost for eternity. This is what's called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. First, in its primary sense in Matthew chapter 12 to the nation of Israel, but anyone who continually rejects Jesus Christ, the very word of God, is blaspheming God. These verses, again, I mentioned, are quoted in the New Testament. They explain, really, Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. A person can harden his heart so much that there's no turning back. He comes to the, the point of no return. Sometimes he has so much invested in his, maybe even the theology of a cult, so much invested in his sin, his money, his finances, whatever it may be. It's got such a grip on him or her. There's no turning back. It's, and this is why I call this message today, it's now or never. See, if this is true of you, it's now or never. If you do not come to that saving knowledge of Jesus, acknowledge him as Lord and Savior today, and reject that truth, then you may be hardening your heart to a point of no return. And really, this is what this is all about. Now, James 1, 22 and 23 says this, But prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers that delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's a man who looks at the natural face in the mirror and walks away. See, the word is full of application. It doesn't matter who's speaking. It doesn't even matter where you're reading the scripture. There's application for you and me. It's to know God, to respond to God, to whatever's pleasing or not pleasing. We respond. And that's what these people were. They were not responding. They were hearing the truth, seeing the truth. They knew the truth. But they weren't growing enough. I, I've got my fire insurance. I'm saved. Being the church, again, is not just coming to church. We do that. We do congregate together. It, it's living a life for Christ daily in our homes, in our workplaces, in the businesses where we go. How we deal with our family, how we deal with our friends. And all of us will fall short in some capacity, but he's made that provision. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So the choice is ours. So there needs to be in our lives this, this, this protection from falling away. All of us can fall away. Now, I'm not talking about falling away and losing salvation. For those that are never saved and know everything, there could be apostasy of falling away. But a believer can backslide. A believer can know what he should be doing and not doing it and, and, and slip into a, a groove, a rut. And, and it's a hard time getting out of a rut. You ever get your car caught in a mud in a rut and trying to rock it back and forth and get it out and you can't? There are spiritual ruts in our life. 
So we have to, to be aware that that, that that capacity is in any one of us at any time to backslide, to, to get caught in this rut. To fall away from the truth and say, well, did Jesus really say that? As the enemy fills your mind and my mind full of rubbish. Jesus really didn't say that. The truth that would ultimately set a person free. They, Reject it, and, and you have to choose whether you like it or not. Well, maybe you don't like what it's saying sometimes. Well, go home and read it. Go home and look it up. Go home and pray about it. Talk to someone else about it. Email me, text me, call me. I heard you say this, but I'm not so sure about it. Can you help me understand it? That's the one who has a teachable spirit. Locks on to it, doesn't want to let go, wants to grow. Wants to honor God, but the one who just leaves, even angry, is the one that has that chance of falling away, falling into a rut, let's say. Now Paul calls them to, to move forward, move forward from the elementary things or the ABCs. It really means the, the beginning, the basics. He wants to take them to the, the deeper things of God. Be careful when you hear that. I've heard people say, well, the deeper things of God are speaking things into existence. You know what the deeper things of God is? Why would God save a wretch like you and me? Why would he die for you and me? Why would he become a man? Why would all your sins and my sins be imputed to him laid upon him in three hours of darkness when he died upon the cross. Every sin was taken upon him. Why would he be separated from the Father the first time? That's the deeper things is knowing God. Why is this pleasing to God? And why is this not pleasing? Because God loves you with an everlasting love and he wants to protect you. It's really knowing God himself. Knowing his character, his nature. Knowing, how can I please him? How can I glorify him? Or what things grieve his heart? Because we don't want to do anything to, to grieve his heart. And kids understand that principle. They want to please their parents. They want to honor their parents. How much more a heavenly father should we want to honor? That's the deeper things of God. How can I know him more? How can I hear his voice more clearly? We talk about be still and know that he is God. What does that mean? We wait about 30 seconds and say, well, I guess he's not going to speak today, and we move on. God wants you to be sincere. Well, there's some important principles. Again, look with me in verse 1. Therefore, leaving these elementary teachings about Christ. Well, the word basically just means a beginning, the basic doctrines. The things that, that are going to pass in time. He wants us to grow up. He wants us to mature. Now, the leaving means to, to go or ascend forth. He wants us to move from the ABCs, these elementary Things, uh, basic doctrines. Doctrines just meaning teaching. Think about it this way. Most of us here probably were in kindergarten. 
How many were in kindergarten? <laughs> yeah. No, you weren't in kindergarten? <laughs> Can't remember that far back, eh? And you know, and you started learning the ABCs. As you move on, you, you start taking these ABCs and putting words together and you begin to read and you continue to move on. Or maybe it was the multiplication when you got there. One times one is uh, oh, one. One times two, three times three. And we finally got up. And it, it's in a spiritual sense like that. We need to grow. There's some basic things we need to learn. This is what he's going to show us in the text. And we need to grow. So this is about maturity. This is all about growing. It's not so much about losing salvation, but it is a warning. It is an exhortation. It's a time to examine our hearts and our lives, where we're at. How are we doing, Lord? And it's a great thing to look and see how we're doing. Again, the writer here is just taking us from the basics to the deeper truths is where he wants to take us to. These principles are the foundations that, that everything else is going to be built upon. I've seen Christians that have been Christians for 20 years and, and they don't understand the basics. And this is what he's talking about, that same thing. They just refuse. Scripture talks about they want their ears tickled. But in our text, there, there's six spiritual basics that are laid out in our text today. They're these basics are the foundational things, and they're three couplets. So they're, they're connected together. And the first one that you see in the, the text there is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And that's in verse 1. Say, so this is where we respond to the gospel. Repentance and faith are the basic tenets of salvation. It's interesting that it's here that a sinner learns that his works, his good works, will never save him. That he is lost without Jesus Christ. He turns then to Jesus Christ, recognizing he is the only one that can save him. He receives a forgiveness and salvation as he puts his faith and trust in God alone. Not in his work. So these are dead work when people are trying to be good enough. So many people do, oh yeah, I'm good enough to go to heaven. I've never murdered anybody. I've never done this. I've never done that. And we say, well, this is basic. No, they are basics. But so many within the body of Christ, and especially here, they did not understand these basics. These are things that you and I should be able to share with other people. We should be able to explain to them the importance. Again, the doctrine of baptisms, the laying of hands, you find in verse 2, it's important. Now, again, this is a second pair that involves ordinances, or ordinances or commands. The first thing is that the baptism, it's an act of obedience. It's something we do because we're commanded to. I love it when a little kid would come up to me and say, you know, I would like to get baptized. And I ask them, why do you want to get baptized? Why, they don't know all the theology. Well, Jesus told me I should be baptized. Yeah! We should be excited. And people say, well, you don't baptize a kid. No. I'm never going to tell a kid, well, you're not mature enough to obey God. No, if they want to honor God 
and obey God, we baptize them. They can always get baptized again. You explain to them the best you can. Baptism is an identification with Christ. And you have that opportunity to explain to them. And I believe that sometimes little kids understand it better than adults. And they grasp it. And that's one of the things about a person when they get saved young, they grasp things. It is a little harder because we're, we're so complicated by the world. In Matthew 3, verse 11, notice what it says. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. And he who's coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove the sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. But I'm only going to talk about really two baptisms today, but there are a multitude of baptisms in the Bible. John the Baptist, his baptism was a baptism of repentance. No one gets saved just on the baptism of repentance. John was pointing, it was preparing the way, pointing them to Jesus that they would be baptized in the name of Jesus and identify with Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. These are, these are the basics. These are the understanding. These were preparatory. They were partial. John was the forerunner to the Messiah. The Messiah would completely overshadow John in the end. In fact, he would be mightier. He would be worthy. His work would reach far beyond. He would baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Be born from above. There's a supernatural work done in your life. Let me read here for a second in Acts 9, or 19, excuse me, verse 3. And he said, into what were you baptized? And he said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in him who was coming after him, who is Jesus. The baptism, again, of Jesus is one that identifies with what Jesus did. And Jesus comes into your life and my life, and we are changed. It is a spiritual baptism. In fact, John 3, 3 says this. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Look on the screen in verse 5. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, this is what I was talking about earlier, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that what is of the Spirit is spirit. There's a spiritual baptism where you're placed in the body of Christ. You know, when you were baptized, you were complete in Christ. Everything that you ever needed is in you. Everything you need for life and godliness, the table is spread. It becomes a time of appropriation, that we appropriate things from him as we need. The second thing is the laying of hands. This, first of all, was a common practice associated, again, with water baptism. The water baptism, it was a ritual, washings is what they would call them. All over Jerusalem, there would be many of these mikvahs that they would, again, ritual baptisms or washings. It was an identification, of course, we know later on that it symbolizes the Holy Spirit. You can find that in Acts 8, 17 and in 19, 6, you'll find it. Well, let me read those two verses again in Acts 8, verse 17. And they began laying hands upon him. They were receiving the Holy Spirit. 
Now this is where some say, well, okay, this is the baptism of the Spirit. These were ones that had been baptized with the baptism of John. It was a, a simply identification, which symbolized there's no power that moves from me to you. The only power moves, again, is the Word of God. The Holy Spirit takes that Word of God and works in you. We identify when, when a pastor or an elder is ordained, they lay hands upon him. There's nothing happens, but it's, it's just a symbolism. We're committing them to God, trusting him in God, trusting the Holy Spirit will lead them in Acts 19.6. Notice what it says, and when Paul had laid hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking tongues and prophesying. Oh, there's the baptism of the Spirit again. Let me just give you a quick one on that. When you see them speaking in tongues in the book of Acts, the first thing you need to understand is Acts is a historical narrative, it's not a doctrinal book. The first time that they speak in tongues is the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and this is very important, and they speak in tongues. They speak in other languages, and this is very significant. And the next time they speak in tongues, it's the Samaritans. The third time they speak in tongues, it's the Gentiles. And this is significant. Why? Because the same Holy Spirit that came upon the Jews. How could the Holy Spirit come upon them? How could he come upon the Gentiles who are good for fueling the fires for hell? The primary meaning of that is to point to the fact that the Holy Spirit came upon them. On every man. On every woman that calls upon the name of the Lord. It's not upon the tongue. It's upon the Holy Spirit filling a person's life. And our part is to surrender that life. Well, there's the resurrection of the dead and the, and the eternal judgment. The resurrection of Christ is a major part of the gospel. And it's important to understand. Let me read 1 Corinthians 15. It's on the screen, verse 54 through 57. Talking about when you get that resurrection body. But when this perishable, this body feels pretty perishable sometimes. How about you? I need a new body. It says, we'll put on the imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. Then, then will come about the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ. You're going to get a new body one day. And that is the most exciting. Christ died and was raised from the grave on the third day. And likewise, you and I will be raised one day with spiritual bodies, fashioned for eternity. Well, again, it gives us another thought here. Again, the, the face, the grace without fear of eternal judgment. Do you know you're saved? Do you know when you die, when you close your eyes in this world, where will you go? Will you cease to exist? There are churches that teach that. Will you open your eyes up in the presence of the Lord? See, this is what he wants us to understand. To be absent the body is to be present with the Lord. And in his presence is fullness of joy. Isn't that sweet? We have a hope, a hope that the world doesn't have. And these, these are the basic tenets of the faith. There's more. 
They didn't understand the elementary basic things. And this is why Paul's saying, hey, look, we need to press on to maturity. The basics are important. But once you've got those basics, it's time to move on. You know, as a kid, once you, you have those ABCs, man, you're wanting to read. You're wanting to, to move forward. And how much more in a spiritual sense to know what God has for you? The author here is, is not talking about sinless perfection. No, no, it's just simply growing to the love and grace of Jesus Christ. Just like a baby grows beyond its bottle. It wants to eat, wants to chew and move on, solid food. We should be the same. And what that means as you grow, that we learn to rightly divide the word of truth. Now, the scripture is very clear that we need not be ashamed. We rightly divide the word of truth. It means we want to understand the author's intent, the primary meaning. That's what comes with maturity. Again, Hebrews 5.14, we looked at this before, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. So you learn how to handle the word, apply the word in your life. But God has given us teachers. You too can become a teacher. You too can teach others. When someone says, I don't understand, that you can open this scripture. The scripture is very clear. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within. Is there a hope that lies within one day that you'll go to be with the Lord? I mean, that should be exciting. I mean, we should burst with praise on that one. Because the best is yet to come. Well, it's interesting because in verse 3, he, he, he says, and this will do if God permits. Whoa, whoa, permission? He's, he's saying this is what we're to do and, and we need to get permission if God permits, if God's willing. I understand that. The writer is, is most likely giving his own testimony about the Old Testament scripture and embrace everything about Christ and everything, but really he's acknowledging the dependence upon God for salvation and for success. We need God. God is the one that's going to give the wisdom, God's going to give the discernment, God's going to give the opportunity. I pray, God, give me your words. Give me your heart. Because that's what you and I need. And when there is sin in the life of a person, this is important to understand, it's usually against the rebellion of God. Well, if God permits, sometimes God will not let us move on if people are just going to fight you all the way. The scripture is very clear. Don't throw the pearls before the swine. It means if they're just going to want to fight and wrangle and argue, you know, there's a time you have to step back. Maybe you're getting away and God's going to harden their hearts because they're already hardening their heart, and that's really what that's about. Well, look with me in verses 4 and 5. And here's where it gets difficult because it's, it, the, the focus is there's a possibility of falling aside, falling a, away. In verse 4, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift, 
have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Well, this, again, I mentioned is, is controversial. It's the, probably the most misunderstood, the most misapplied. And some teach uh, uh, that the, the writer has apostasy in mind. And, and that's true. A, a person can know in their head, their mind, the truth, and, and never really be born again and fall away. And, and there's probably some that are in this church because in every congregation there's that. But the primary thing is to believers who are not maturing, who are not growing, and they're holding everyone else back. Again, it's a serious problem when we come to this point of, of really interpretation. The passage is, is not teaching you can lose salvation because throughout the whole Bible, it teaches that there's this security of salvation. And again, as I mentioned, you're saved, you're being saved, and will be saved. You're kept by the power of God. And so often it's taught that you can lose salvation. No, what it is, is he's exhorting the people. Hey, look, examine yourself. See if you're of the faith. Do you see your actions? Do you see your attitude? Do you understand this stinking thinking that's going on in your mind? It's so easy for someone else to see how you might be acting, and it's hard for us to see ourselves. Do you understand how that works? Even if you look in the mirror, you say something, and somebody receives it differently, and, and you say, well, that isn't how I mean it, and, and we get defensive. We don't understand. And this is what he's doing. He's speaking to those who really don't get it. They don't want to get it. Well, I come to church. I, I give. But there's more than that. It's having peace. It passeth all understanding. It's, it's sharing with your neighbors. And this is what he, he's speaking to. So he, he's not teaching this one thing. One strike and you're out and you lost yourself. He's not teaching that. We have to examine our lives. Another common interpretation is passages is Paul was saying that these people, again, were never saved in the first place. That's apostate, is one who's never saved. They, they can go through all the moves, say the right things, sing the songs, and still not be saved. Scripture's clear that wheat and tare grow side by side. You can't tell the difference in, until the harvest, but God understands. Well, notice again in verse 4, the, the revelation. They have been once enlightened. Well, that's confusing, uh, enlightened. The word enlightened means to, to bring to light, to enlighten, to illuminate. It's speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit. We know the Holy Spirit's in the world, convicting people of their sin. Not just the unbeliever, but us as well. The Christian is one who's enlightened. In fact, in John 9, 5, notice what it says. While I am in the world, I am the light unto the world. Light exposes darkness in our lives. It's in John 1, 9, he says, and there was a true light which was coming in the world, and he enlightens every man. I love that. He enlightens every man. Everyone in this world is without excuse. There is light and understanding, illumination of God in this world. Romans chapter 1 talks about it. In fact, I want to share with you verses 18 and 19. For the wrath that God has revealed from heaven against ungodliness 
unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which was known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God makes light evident in every person. They have to reject, they have to suppress that truth, they have to walk away. That's what the Bible's teaching. Well, what about the people in the mountains? No, God reveals himself to them. That's what the scriptures say. So look at it. They have once been enlightened. So from that very passage gives us the idea he's speaking to believers. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in the hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. See, again, Paul in that passage is talking to the to believers, and certainly, again, we're talking to believers. Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches and glory of the inheritance of the saints. All these things point to the fact that, that they are believers. So the question is, are, are they really believers? Well, the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of their sins and their need of Jesus. John 16, 8 and 9 says this, And he, when he comes, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they did not believe. So the one that believes is a believer. And it will show in his life. Now the world is a, a sinful place. Will you agree? You, you look at the TV. You look at the world. What's the most basic sin in this world is, is the world is guilty. Guilty of what? Guilty of unbelief. This is why they do what they do. Well, again, notice they tasted the heavenly gift. That's the people. That speaks of their redemption. And again, he's speaking to believers. And, and the interpretation is, is, is twisted sometimes. Notice again, it uses the word tasted. I like this, tasted. I like food, don't you? I used to like it when you go to Costco and they have all the samples, you can try them everywhere. Christianity's not that way. You go here, sample this and nibble on this and, and see if you really like it. I'm gonna try and just taste Jesus, see if he's good. No, and then that's somehow, sometimes people are in churches like that. Nibbling a little here, nibbling a little bit there. It could be some are there. But the word tasted, Christ tasted, now he partook of the death completely, fully partook. It's the same word, same usage. Now it's going to go on and it's going to talk about a heavenly gift. And it's eternal life. Romans 6, 23, the very end of that verse gives us that thought, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a heavenly gift. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. Acknowledge Jesus Christ, trust in him, and you can have salvation. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. You know, there are some within the body of Christ, okay, they partook of Christ what seems to be partook of Christ, but it's defined here, again, if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance and firm until the end. 
if we're really holding on and trusting in Jesus Christ. We only see outward actions. God sees the heart. That you could read Paul's teaching in the book of Romans in chapter 5 and chapter 8. And, and understand that a person is saved. But if it's true, it's a believer who is important to understand what he's saying is, look, if you're on that kind of cusp, you're, you're right on that line, sitting on that fence, move forward. Mature, you'll find out whether you're a believer or not. This is the one that is fallen away. Yeah, they're excited about all the things in Christ, and, 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 but there's no change. There's no root in their lives. Well, again, it's talking to believers. You see it in verse 4. They're partakers of the Holy Spirit. That speaks of regeneration, a person being born again. In 2 Peter, again, it talks about that we become partakers of his divine nature. You partake of God's nature because God is in you. When he says, be holy as I am holy, none of us are holy yet. But that holiness is working in your life and my life, changing us and transforming us. We're taking on that nature. He's imputing it. And we call this, again, regeneration. Let me read Titus for a second. Titus 3, verse 5 through 7. Great verses to underline in your Bible if you haven't underlined it. Notice again, it begins, He saved us. It's a work of God. Not on the basis of our deeds. This is not dead works, which we've done in righteousness, but according to His mercy and the washing, the regeneration, renewing the Holy Spirit, whom He's poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, that we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know, a believer, he knows these passages. Maybe not that one, maybe another one, and he finds great comfort in them. He, he wants to share them with someone else. When somebody asks about his faith, let me show you. I'm comforted by this. These verses speak to me. And you should be able to explain it in some way. As you mature, this is what we're to do. We're to take this out. This is what it's called going and making disciples. And then in John 14, verses 16 and 17, I will ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive but it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. The believer has the Holy Spirit in him. And when you pray, he will give you the words. He will guide you. He will direct you. It's so important to understand. Do you know the Holy Spirit is in you? The unbeliever doesn't know that. The carnal person or that immature really doesn't understand that completely. But one who is growing and maturing, the Holy Spirit, he learns to discern the Holy Spirit speaking to him. It's the Holy Spirit. His Spirit, okay, testifies with our spirit that we're saved. When the enemy says, oh, you, after today, you think you're saved. The Spirit says, yes, you're saved. And we confess if we've sinned. And he knows you 
He knows your mind. He knows your heart. He knows your weaknesses. We, have a, we saw a sympathetic high priest we can go to. The Spirit indwells you. He comforts you. And he leads you in all truth, the Scripture says. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed. Guaranteed. Till the day he takes you home. I love opening these scriptures with someone who has, has come to the Lord and they get so excited who has given you a pledge of our inheritance with the view of the redemption of God's own possession and praise of his glory. You're God's. He loves you with an everlasting love. You ever doubt his love? Look at the cross. He died for you and me. So the believer, he, he's a partaker. He's writing to those who partake of this Holy Spirit, those who have been born again, those who have been regenerated. These people have received the Holy Spirit. Look with me again at 4 and 5. I'm going to read, or 4 and 6, excuse me. And, and the price of falling away, there's consequences. For in the case of those who have become once enlightened, he's talking about the believer, tasted the heavenly gift, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify themselves, the Son of God and put him to open shame. So this sounds like he's losing salvation, but the reality is we know that you can't lose salvation because of all the other verses, so what is he saying? There's a red flag that goes up. He's saying in this sense, look, it's, it's impossible if you fall away. He's getting the exam. Do you, do you realize what you're thinking? Do you realize your actions? Everyone's backslidden in their life. For it's impossible, though it goes, if, if they shall fall away and renew again under repentance. Again, Hebrews 3.14 says this, For we have become partakers of, of Christ, that's the believer, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance of firm until the end. Again, Hebrews 6 Verses 7 and 8, for the ground that drinks up the rain, which often fails on it, brings forth vegetation useful for those for the sake of children to receive the blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed and end up being burned. Really, the key here is fruitfulness. A believer as he grows and matures, will have much fruit in his life. The unbeliever, there's no fruit. 